All right, so we're going to start our, our teaching for this morning, but continue our, our series called One. And um, today we're going to talk about one life. Uh, you and I in this room today are incredibly blessed, aren't we? That we are alive in this world with the measure of health that we do have. And whatever years God has permitted us to live under the sun, it's all a grace gift. Uh, for those of us who have been born in this country or have immigrated to this country, it's not perfect Canada, but it's a great place to call home, isn't it? Especially when we see things going on in different parts of the world, it's like, wow, yeah, we can complain about our health care or education system or whatever it might be, but we've got it pretty good right here in Canada, and, uh, and we're blessed in so many ways. And so we were singing that, um, all my life you've been faithful. Um, did you sing that with a greater sense of um, rigor this morning and with gratitude? God has been faithful to us. doesn't mean that our life has been easy. We have stories to tell of hardship, I'm sure. But we also have stories to tell of God's faithfulness in the middle of the hardship. And uh, God has been faithful in sending his son Jesus to die for the sins of the whole world, including our own. And then resurrection to new life, a down payment, first fruits that all of us will experience, those of us who put our saving faith in Christ. And so we have so much to be grateful for today. But this one solitary life goes so quickly, doesn't it? Honestly, the older we get, the more the more quickly the days seem to go by and the weeks just blur together, the months, and here comes Christmas again, and it's just life goes fast. And uh, we want to live with great deliberate intentionality. And um, we want to make the most of the days God has granted us under the sun. And so this is what we're going to talk about today, this one life we get to live. Um, you know, sometimes we talk about regrets. I can't imagine there is anyone in this room today who's seated here right now who doesn't have any regrets from the way their life has played out, the decisions they've made. If they had a chance to do a do-over, there'd probably be multiple do-overs that we would do, right? Life moves in one direction. There are forks in the road. We make decisions. We wonder what our life would have been like if we would have gone left instead of right. But here we are and as Scripture says, not one of us in this room is without offense in the sense that we've all fallen short of that perfection, that standard of perfection, and that we all need saving. So I can't imagine there's anybody in this room who doesn't have some measure of regret. And sometimes when we talk about regret, we, we kind of paint it with a broad brush of negativity. And uh, it's not that we're saying, hey, listen, let's pile up the regrets so we have more and more of them. But at the end of the day, regret is about learning, isn't it? It's about moving forward, saying, yeah, I might have done that differently. If I knew what I knew now, what I knew then, I might have made a change. Um, that decision might have played out differently if I had have known X, Y, and Z. And so this is what life is about. So we move forward. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fail. We're not going to always get it right. Uh, and there will be on our final day, if we have that opportunity to do inventory before we leave this world, there will be a sense in which it'll be, yeah, you know what? I got a lot of things right, but there's some things I would have done differently. It's the way life works for all of us. And learning to get up and move forward, even in the face of some measure of regret, um, is, is what we would consider to be resiliency. And thanks be to God for his grace and his mercy and his spirit's power that helps us keep moving forward. So the goal of life is not to get through it without regrets, but to learn from each experience so that we can, in the words of Scripture, become complete, mature, and lack nothing, James chapter 1. So if you're able, would you stand with me this morning? We're going to recite uh, an important passage to us known as the Shema 
for our Jewish friends, and uh, it's taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And if you're new to us, this is our one opportunity during the gathering to uh, recite Scripture together. And so if you're comfortable hearing your own voice, I know your neighbor will be comfortable hearing it too. So let's read together. Here we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So here's where our teaching is going this morning. We're going to take a look at one whole chapter of the Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And there are 12 chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of my favorite books. Um, I actually put my, uh, my AirPods in this morning, went for my walk, and I pressed play, and I listened to all 12 chapters again. It is a wonderful, wonderful book, and uh, for us to understand the flow of the book and the themes that are introduced and the nuances that the writer uh, emphasizes, we need to understand the backstory and the perspective that the writer comes to terms with. Uh, In many ways, he's writing from a perspective for the first 11 chapters for the most part, maybe even for the first 11 and a half chapters. He's writing from the perspective of life under the sun, S-U-N. And for those of us who are New Testament believers, um, there's another dimension to this that he brings into play at the very end of the book. It's life under the sun, S-O-N. And so there is this pessimistic, half-glass, empty perspective as uh, the writer writes in the book of Ecclesiastes with incredible honesty. And uh, there are certain phrases that are repeated over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Here's one of them. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. That's what he says over and over again. Meaningless, meaningless. He's saying that life without the S-O-N, so to speak, or from an Older Testament perspective only, life without loving reverence of God and the commandments and the ways of God held before a person, life lacks purpose, life lacks meaning. And then he would say over and over again, what has been will be again. There is nothing new under the sun. And so he's writing again from this perspective that is somewhat pessimistic, um, but he's introducing something to us that's very powerful, and especially at the very end of the, uh, the chapter, uh, chapter 12, he really draws um, the conclusion of the matter. And so we're going to take a look at... Um, chapter 12 of the book of Ecclesiastes, and then we're going to go into the New Testament, take a look at one parable of Jesus, and then we will wrap up our teaching. We're going to take a look at the body. We're going to take a look at the mind. We're going to take a look at the conclusion of the matter, and then we're going to take a look at gains and losses before we're done. So uh, ready to go? Let's go. All right, so life and the body. We're talking about one life today. We get one life. We get one body, even though actually... Some parts that are added to us as we get older are a little bit artificial, (laughs) Uh, right? There's all sorts of amazing things that the medical community can do to make our knees uh, function a bit better when they have experienced enough wear and tear. Um, There's so many things, including teeth that we can get put into into our mouth. I was just at the dentist this past week, and they were talking about all sorts of things related to my teeth. 
and uh, it was a good experience for the most part. Um, but the dentist was saying, we think you're going to be okay. You're still using your mouth guard. I tend to grind my teeth at night. Any teeth grinders at night in the room? Yeah. A um, little regression in the gums. Wear and tear, right, on this body of ours. It happens. I'm 54 years young. Got lots of mileage left, I think, right, as we move along. Um, but thanks be to God for the medical community that can help us with this one solitary body that we get to live in this world. Um, the writer of Ecclesiastes takes us to chapter 12, and uh, he records these words. Think about our bodies as they get older. The younger people in the room today are thinking, that's never going to happen to me, right? All these older people with their aches and pains, right? Yeah. It happens to all of us if we live long enough. So here's the writer, verse 1 of chapter 12. Much wisdom here. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Don't wait till you're old. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. He says, before the days of trouble come. Apparently there's trouble that comes as we get older. And the years approach when we will say to ourselves, I find no pleasure in them. That's a tough phrase right there, isn't it? Is it possible as we get older, we long for heaven that much more because the pleasure principle for life in this world seems to be less and less and less and less? That's what the writer seems to be saying. He says, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, it's raining and we're waiting for the sun to come, but the clouds come back again. He says, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, their shoulders are hunched over. When the grinders cease, <laughs> when the teeth are not as many, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim. Have you noticed that the shades over the eyes get a little bit narrower, right? When the doors to the street are closed, the opportunities seem to be less and less. And the sound of grinding fades, all that's going on outside in the marketplace, because we're not there as much. When people rise up at the sound of birds, early morning, but all their songs grow faint because my hearing just seems to be, what, would you say that again? When people are afraid of heights, their anxiety levels go up and of dangers in the streets. I like this one. When the almond tree blossoms. When the almond tree blossoms, the leaves, there's like white flowers that emerge. I would give anything for white flowers. Grayish hair is what they're talking about here. Some of you can relate. Others of you said, where did all the flowers go? <laughs> they're gone. <laughs> when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags, itself along, and desire no longer is stirred. I've just kind of lost my appetite. All those drives and desires I once had when I was younger to accomplish and to attain, even as older people get even that much older, they lose their appetite sometimes. When desire no longer is stirred, and then people go to their eternal home. Isn't that interesting? when they go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. It's important to live well, isn't it, so that there's some mourners in the streets when we go. 
Do you want to live in such a way so that people miss you in this world? I do. I want to live in such a way so that people will say, I miss David. He was a good man. He made my little corner of the world a little bit better. I want to live like that. I don't want to live in such a way where people say, oh, he died? Oh, did you watch the Leafs last night? Right? (laughs) Remember him, God. It's not about us. It's about God. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns. The dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. We've got dreams and desires. We've got hopes and ambitions and the things that we want to attain in life. And when we're younger, we've got lots of time to get there and get that thing done, that accomplishment, those things that are in our hearts, vision for life. And then weeks turn into months, months turn into quarters, corners corners turn into years. And then life just seems to slip through our fingers in little pieces. Do you ever find yourself, I've said this to my wife many times, just feels like life is moving at breakneck speeds and my life feels like it's just going through my fingers in little pieces. Watch my daughters get older. Watch my parents get older. Watch people I love in this church family get older. And then I have this wonderful privilege to sometimes preside at funerals and celebrations of life and to see some wonderful saints go to their uh, reward with God on the other side and It's not always easy to let good people go and to celebrate their life this side for sure and lean into the reunion that's coming on the other side, but life is fleeting. It doesn't last forever this side of heaven, and there are no guarantees that you and I will get our 70 years or perhaps 80 years or perhaps even 90 years. That would be a wonderful thing, quality of life, if it maintains itself, wonderful to live a long time. But there's more to life than just how we live here and now. We're leaning into what's coming next too. Are you thankful for heaven? Couldn't imagine living life under the S-U-N with no revelation about life under the S-O-N, right? The one true son of God. It's a game changer for all of us. And so this one body that we get, it's important that we look after it that we feed it well, that we rest it, that we move it, that we honor it. And in the Older Testament, the body is a gift that we get to live in. Uh, It's something we should offer to God. In the New Testament, it becomes sacred space. It's like the temple now. All of a sudden, just as in the Older Testament, there was sacred geographical space you would go to, the land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem. There was the temple or the tabernacle. There was the holy place, the most holy place. And so there was this geographical concentric series of circles as we considered the holiness of God, that which was most sacred. In the New Testament, Paul writes and says, your body is that space. And so that's why around King Street, we call this meeting room the auditorium. And the reason we do that is because you are the sanctuary. You're the temple. You're the holy, sacred space that God chooses to dwell. The moment we call this a tabernacle or a temple or we call this the sanctuary, we run the risk 
of moving the meter away from a biblical imperative where we see ourselves wherever we go as sacred space. Because if this is sacred space only or exclusively, what can happen is a false dichotomy emerges in us. And then all of a sudden it's like, I'll be holy here, but out there in the secular world, it's just the world. No, wherever you and I go, we have this beautiful privilege and opportunity and responsibility to bring sacred presence with us because the spirit lives inside of us. Do you believe that to be true? Amen. That's why we don't get worked up over this space necessarily. It's an important functional meeting place for us to gather for worship as the church, as the people of God. But it's what you bring with you when you come to the meeting space. When we worship the one true God together, right? Wherever two or three are gathered, there's this beautiful dynamic that happens that the Spirit makes possible by our clustering, by our gathering. But then we go out, after we gather, we scatter on mission in the world together, and we bring that sacred space, the container. This is just a container, but it's an important container because we only get one of them. So how well are you doing these days at resting it? How well are you doing these days at feeding it and moving it and caring for it? It's really, really important that we, <laughs> we take good care. We could call it temple maintenance, right? Maintain the temple as an act of worship to the one true God. The body isn't worshiped, but how we care for it can be an expression of worship. And so bodies matter. In the New Testament, there were all sorts of weird ideas circulating that spirit was valuable, but matter wasn't. According to God and his revelation in both Testaments, matter matters. Physiological things matter. God values them. He made us in bodies, and he said we were very good. And one day, resurrection, there will be matter that comes up from the ground. It will be a new body, just as Jesus had a new body. He ate with it, right? He ate with this body. We are going to eat with ours, too. We're going to work them. Holy, beautiful, vocational work is going to happen in our body. And so the body matters. But we get one of them, so let's take good care of it. Uh, number two, uh, we have one life, and let's talk about our one life and the mind. The mind matters, too. Uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes continues in chapter 12, and uh, we pick up his thread in verse 9. Listen to what he says about knowledge and wisdom. He says, not only was the teacher wise, verse 9, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. Knowledge matters. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. Uh, proverbs are, I love proverbs. And if you're here today saying, what is a proverb? It's a short, memorable saying that provides wisdom and advice, and it transcends time. Uh, he continues, the teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're like um, rods that kind of prod you in the right direction. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails that you can count on, given by one shepherd. And then he says, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there's no end. And have you ever experienced this before? And much study wearies the body. Yeah, much study wearies the body. Isn't that interesting where now the writer brings the body and the mind together? 
Uh, I've worked jobs that were much more blue-collar. I've worked jobs that are much more white-collar. I would say this to both communities of people who work. Both is honest, virtuous, noble work. I've been on the other end of a shovel at times, working in factories along the way. I know what it's like to put an honest 12-hour shift in in a 115-degree temperature at a fiberglass Canada insulation plant in Scarborough between years of college. And when people work jobs like that, it is very hard work. When we work our body, we're exhausted. And I have worked my mind, my brain, in many ways too. And sometimes after taking a course or writing an exam or reading some books or doing some writing of some sort, it's like, I just feel like I was in the factory again for 12 hours because I feel worn out. You'd be amazed how worn out I feel after I preach a sermon. I go home on Sunday afternoons and I go, ah, is the football game on, <laughs> right? Uh, it's, it's amazing. And, and this is what the writer says. He says, body and mind, both can leave you absolutely wearied and exhausted. Um, and so here, as we move through chapter 12, we discover that um, knowledge and wisdom really matters a lot, actually. In Jesus, he said that we should love God with all of our mind as well. And so the thoughts that we think about life and about God and and thoughts can just be thoughts, and at the same time, entertained thoughts and ruminations can be incredibly powerful. They can be powerful in a positive way, and they can be powerful in a negative way. Thoughts do carry power, and uh, we do well to evaluate them, to think about our thinking. This is one thing that humans get to do. I don't think any other creature gets to do this, but humans do. We can actually think about our thinking. And sometimes when we're just going through life at breakneck speeds, we're just thinking, and we're not paying attention to what we're thinking about. I think we do well to think about our thinking, because if we go on autopilot and we just let thoughts be thoughts and they begin to sort of infect the operational system of our own souls, we can be impacted and infected in many, many ways. And so the writer says, your knowledge and wisdom, we should go after it, and we should cultivate a way of thinking. In our one solitary life that we get, we get one brain too. We get one brain, and we're learning more and more and more about the brain. I picked up this National Geographic magazine that was all about the brain about a month or two ago. And it was just like, it's absolutely fascinating what we're learning neurologically about how the brain is wired up and how we operate uh, from a neurological point of view and how the body and the brain is so connected. And it is, uh, pardon the pun here, but brilliant. (laughs) The brain has been brilliantly designed. Uh, the, the activity that's going on in your brain right now, just for me to be moving my hands and speaking and seeing, it's just, it's, it's phenomenal. Uh, you and I are not some random cosmic accident. We have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And so guarding the brain and developing the brain and stewarding our mind, oh, wow, that's so important. And to be honest with you, um, I talk to some people, younger people these days, um, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's virtuous and noble. Or good for us. Younger people smoking marijuana these days is having an impact on their brains. And um, so we ought to be very careful how we feed, rest, move our bodies, honor it. The brain, the mind is part of our experience in this world. And once we damage our brain, we live with a damaged brain. There can be some neuroplasticity going on where we can make some changes by how we think and it takes deliberate intentionality, no, no question about it. But we want to be wise on what we expose our minds to, right? We are transformed, according to the Apostle Paul, by the renewing of our minds. 
Like for me, just walking for a half hour and letting 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes wash over me with my AirPods on, I got into my house, I just felt refreshed. I was able to just allow truth to kind of wash over me. A steady diet of Netflix without the word of God is going to lead you to not steward your mind well. And so as we have said over the years here, keep your nose in the good book. Read truth. Um, A.W. Tozer once said, he only has so much time in the world and there are so many books that he wants to read. He said, I can't waste time reading the mediocre ones. Read good books. Listen to great podcasts. Be entertained by the things that lift the spirit. Right? It's really, really important for us. So one body, one mind. Now we're going to get to the life, life and the conclusion of the matter. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, if you're new to the Bible or you haven't read it in a while, uh, it addresses the human search for meaning and the futility of pursuing human pleasures, possessions, and accomplishments. Not that those aren't important. God made us with the capacity to enjoy and experience pleasure, to acquire things. Not bad, not wrong. Accomplishments. God made us so that we would have dominion, care for the garden, steward this world. It's all good. It's when it gets out of place on the priority list where it becomes problematic. The writer talks about the challenge of work and the inevitability of death, the importance of enjoying life's simple pleasures and finding contentment in the everyday aspects of life, including our eating, drinking, and our daily work. The book addresses the uncertainty about tomorrow and to avoid being overly anxious about what the future holds or about what's coming next. It's an introspective book that invites the reader to consider what's most important in life. It's a book that every human should be familiar with. If you haven't read it in a really long time, why don't you consider putting your AirPods in this afternoon? It'll take you 30 minutes and allow the book of Ecclesiastes to come to you again, or perhaps maybe for the very first time. The writer concludes, here's the conclusion of the matter. After he's spoken about all these themes throughout Ecclesiastes, he gets to chapter 12, verse 13, and he finishes with these words. He says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. When you hear a writer who's been writing about life and the meaningless nature of it under the SUN, and you see him come to this moment, and he says, here's the conclusion of the matter. You sit up straight, you lean in, and here's what he says. This is the point. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty. Or in Hebrew, the word means complete. This is what it looks like to live out a complete experience of life. For this is the duty or the complete posture of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And he puts a period there. There it is. That's the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now again, whether you're new to the Bible or not, fear God is not cower in the corner and being afraid of him as you and I might be afraid if we were put on the front lines of a battle in a war. Being afraid in this context or, or, or um, fearing God is about loving reverence, knowing our place. He is creator, we are creature. He is an independent being, we are dependent creatures. God is perfect, I am flawed. 
I look at him for who he is, and I look back at myself, and I say, what is man that you are mindful of me? The son of man that you would care for me. You made me a little lower than the angels, and yet you've crowned me with dignity and compassion. That's what it means for us to live in loving reverence of God and then to keep his commandments. It doesn't get a lot of airtime these days when we think about keeping the commandments of God. Sometimes in traditions like ours, we talk about having a relationship with God. And I think that's very, very important. We don't want to just say, I want to follow the commandments and not have a relationship with God. But here's the fine line. If we emphasize relationship with God, but we lose out on the commandments or the ways of God, we do ourselves and the kingdom of God a disservice. The commandments are always protective. They're always intended to guard life. They're intended to form us into the people of God. And when we keep the commandments of God, guess what happens? There is a lift that happens in the human person. There's a lift that happens in families. There's a lift that happens in church communities in greater communities, in countries. When we truly say yes to the ways of God and we say, I will keep your commandments. And when I fail to, I will ask for your forgiveness because I'm going to elevate your ways over my own, right? There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. The ways of God lead to life and to life everlasting. And so this is why Solomon writes and says, here's the end of the matter. Fear God, put him in his rightful place, loving reverence. He's the creator, you're the creature, and keep his commandments. Commandments are not suggestions. They are not optional. Commandments are not if I have time, if I can get around to it, if I feel like it. Commandments are unmovable boundary markers that God has established that are consistent with his design and the way the universe is intended to work. Could you imagine a world where we all just said, Telling the truth is optional. Imagine what your workplace would be like. Could you imagine we would not have what we have as a country if every person, when they do their self-reporting income tax return, decides to say income reporting is optional, right? If we made up all sorts of expenses and brought our tax rate down to nil, you imagine why isn't anybody picking up our garbage? How come there's no teachers in our schools? Where are all the nurses gone? Right? We pay our taxes. We tell the truth. We report on our income line what is accurate and right because it's best for all of us. Is it painful for you sometimes when somebody gives you a paid job and you don't have a reporting T4 on it? What do I do with this? Nobody else knows. Nobody else knows, but God knows. And you know. I always remember... The first compromise is always the hardest. The second one and third, one and fourth, one and 14th and 15th are always easier. And if we did that to one another, every time I don't report income, I'm cheating my neighbor out of a better standard of living. It is really, really quiet in here today. <laughs> but pastor, do you know what they do with that money? They blow it. The government wastes it. Let me waste it as opposed to them. Maybe they do waste it sometimes. I don't think they set out to waste it, but they do things that we would consider waste. Fair enough. But they're responsible for that. You and I are responsible to pay our tithes. Uh-oh, <laughs> tithes. Woo-woo, Pastor Dave. 
They were <laughs> tithes. See, this is why I don't like to go to church. They talk about money. God doesn't need your money, by the way, just a heads up. He doesn't need it. He owns it all. It's all his. He owns everything, and he can take it anytime he wants to. And sometimes he'll do that, by the way. He'll put his hand in your pocket, and he will take what belongs to him when we have not given it to him. That's hard preaching right there. Those of us who are in the saving faith community of the one true God, when we give 10% of our income, we are not giving anything. It doesn't belong to us anymore. That's what the scriptures teach. My wife and I, every Thursday, every other Thursday, 10%. And I, we don't even consider that giving. We're just giving back to God what's his anyway. My wife and I, oh, it's unbelievable. It happened even this week, many times this week, where it was like, I can't believe this. God is so generous and good to us. We don't earn it or deserve it by paying our tithe. Don't get me wrong. But when you just line up to God's ways, just, just do it. Line up to God's ways and step back and watch what he'll do for you. As Malachi says, test him in this and see if he won't throw open the windows of heaven and bless you. He does. Anybody been blessed by God by having the windows of heaven opened up over your life? 100%. It happens. So fear God, keep his commandments. And, uh, and watch him be faithful to you as we were singing earlier. All right, so we're going to end with this. Gains and losses. Our one life, gains and losses. Um, oh, by the way, when, when we go, I just want to go back to that one more time. When, when I get to near the end, and I don't know when that'll be, I don't know if, I'm conflicted on whether I just want to die or whether I want to know I'm dying. How many of you want to just die? Just just that's it. Go to bed, never wake up. How many of you want to know, like, say, a couple of months? Kind of want to know? Some? Kind of? I think most of you just want to die, don't you? Yeah, just... <laughs> Some people want to get raptured. Okay, all right. I'm afraid of height, so I'm going to go with the death thing. I think that's... Um, but if we get a chance to know, right? If we get a chance to have a little advanced notice because the doctor has said, I'm sorry, I don't have better news for you, but X, Y, and Z is probably going to happen over the next three months. If we end up with that kind of report, isn't it nice to know that, because the writer of Ecclesiastes says, I don't know how big your net worth is, whether it's this big, this big, this big, I don't know financially. But one thing I do know, it doesn't matter how big it is or how small it is, you're leaving all of it behind. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there's no guarantee that the person who inherits, who inherits your money is going to be wise with it or foolish with it. And he says, that's another thing to grieve in life. You've worked hard, you've got all this, you leave it behind, and then your kids and your wife, and your, they go on cruises all around the world and they spend your money, right? That's a 21st century application right there. I say that to my wife all the time. I said, at least grieve for two weeks before you book the first trip, right? Um, but as you near the exit door of your life, isn't it important to know this? That for the most part, you trusted God. And I can't think of any other way to trust God more in a tangible way than with tithe and offerings. 
If I trust him for salvation on the other side, can I not trust him when I give him 10% that he's going to look after me and my family? When I breathe my last and I say, into your hands I commit my spirit, believing he's there for me, can I not learn now to believe that he's here for me in the here and now, that he will look after me? I want to believe that we'll grow that as we trust him. See, life is like, we're like little children growing up to become spiritually mature adults, and we learn that we'll be fit for him on the other side. And so this is like training ground. I want to be in the presence of God when I see him face to face to say, oh, I should have, I could have trusted him even more fully because look at him and what he's capable of doing. And we learn it as we move along in life in this world. And I want to have great satisfaction to say, Lord, whatever I left behind, I left behind as an investment in your kingdom. And so um, it's important. All right, one last parable, and here it is. We're going to go to money one more time, and it's Jesus, not me. Gains and losses. Someone in the crowd, Pastor Ken read this earlier, said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me because I want to go on a cruise, right? (laughs) Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. There's a warning. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life, now think Ecclesiastes. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Meaningless, meaningless. Then he said to them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He was blessed. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I got a great idea. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Back to Ecclesiastes. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Live the easy life. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, you don't get any advance warning. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Somebody else gets it. Somebody else is going to live in your house. Somebody else is going to ride your boat. Somebody else is going to drive in your car. Somebody else is going to have your furniture if they want it, right? Somebody else is going to have it. This is what Jesus is saying. You don't take it with you. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. I need to finish with this last comment, by the way. It's very important that we understand this. God is not against wealthy people. God gives wealth to people. Wealth is not a bad thing. Being rich or being wealthy, which most of us are in the West, doesn't have to be a problematic thing for us. It's always this way. What is it that wealth does to us? If wealth makes us proud and arrogant, if it makes us miserly and tight and cheap, if it somehow makes our heart colder and smaller, then wealth has done us a disservice. But Jesus says, the real problem is if we are not rich toward God. That's the problem. So you can be under-resourced and not be rich toward God. You can be abundantly resourced and not be rich toward God. Or both of those situations, under-resourced and very rich toward God, and wealthy, 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 and be rich toward God. Both can happen to all of us in this room. And so this one life that you have, remember, it's not about what we have. It's not about what we've earned. 
It's not about all of our accomplishments and attainments. It's about being rich toward God. Well, what does it mean to be rich toward God? It means to be at peace with Him. Whatever hostility has been between us, which is always our doing, not His, we have made it right before Him. We are living in unbroken fellowship before God. We are preparing ourselves for the uninterrupted presence of God on the other side, and we are learning what it means to follow Him. And so that's what I'm inviting in you, in, you into today for this one solitary life that you get. Your body matters, your mind matters, living in reverence of God and keeping His commandments matters, and how we relate to money matters. And most importantly, what matters is being rich toward God. And so uh, may that be all of our experience in this place today. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let me pray for you before we transition. Lord, thank you for today and for the fact that we are alive in this world. We have bodies to call our home for now, and it's sacred space. And we have a treasure that is in these jars of clay, according to the Apostle Paul. May the treasure of your spirit be occupying more and more space in the temple that we have been entrusted with. Lord, for some of us, our bodies have been giving us some grief lately, consistent with the first part of chapter 12 of the book of Ecclesiastes. May your grace come in its various forms and give us what we need to bear up under our weakness. For others of us, our bodies are working wonderfully. We give thanks and praise to you. But we know, Lord, that uh, as you permit and as we age in this world, things will not always remain this way. Help us, God, to keep an eye on what's coming next. In the words of the writer of Ecclesiastes, our eternal home is with you in your heaven and on your new earth one day. And so, God, help us to be well-postured, to lean into what matters most, to pray the prayer, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Lord, we uh, pledge our devotion to you in a fresh way again today. Would you come, Lord, and help us with wherever there may be some impediments where we are experiencing some measure of broken companionship and fellowship with you. Help us, Lord, to experience just a vibrant, flourishing relationship with God. And thanks be to God today for Jesus who makes that relationship possible. And Lord, I think about the commandments today with my friends. Some commandments are easier to keep than others. And Lord, today as a faith community, we acknowledge a big resounding yes to your ways and to your commandments. And uh, Lord, we ask for the power and the grace to be able to, uh, to keep them, not in order to earn our salvation, but because we are the people of God, help us to live well so that we are formed by you and are effective witnesses in the world that provide a lift to our families, to our communities, to our church, and to our world. And we pray all of this in the awesome name of God, who is forever Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you believe that prayer, would you say a big amen with me? Amen. Amen.